The reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 30, and um, in, in the um, church Bible, it's page 301. David destroys the Amalekites. <clears throat> David and his men reached Ziglag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziglag. They had attacked Ziglag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziglag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bezor Valley, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, Who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kerethites, some territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag. David asked him, Can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, Swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, This is David's plunder. 
Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bezor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute, an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. David sent it to those who were in Bethel, Ramoth Negev, and Jatia, to those in Aroa, Sifmoth, Eshtemoa, and Rachel, to those in the towns of Jeheramites and the Kenites, to those in Hormah, Borashan, Athak, and Hebron, and to those in all the other places where he and his men had roamed. Amen. Amen. Well, th thank you very much. You're welcome. It is really lovely to be I better move that because it pokes me in the eye. Um, but it, it is lovely to be with you. And um, I've known Matt for some years, and Dave more recently. I got to know him as well. And uh, it, it is a joy to be with you today to see uh, the situation that you've been called to, Matt, and also what the Lord is doing here I'd like you to come back to that passage which was read for us from 1 Samuel 30. Um, I must say it was read very well as well because the words, the names at the end of the passage are a little bit challenging, but you did ever so well there, thank you. Um, and we're going to be looking this morning in particular at a moment in David's life. It's, uh, it's not that well known a moment and yet it is full of application to us. We've already in this service heard of a discouragement that you as a church have had regarding this building project, which you were looking and hoping would open up. And that's just one example, I suppose, of the many challenges you as a church have faced, but also the principle that you in your life as a Christian and me in my life as a Christian inevitably face many challenges, many setbacks, many times when we may feel discouraged and even times when we may feel disillusioned. Now, I don't know if you know this incident very well. I'm going to run through it again quickly and also give you a bit more background because the background is really important to our understanding of the incident. And then we're going to look at what is at the heart of this chapter, which was how David responded to crushing discouragement and difficulty. And my prayer is very much that it may serve as a reminder to us of what encouragement there is to find in the Lord, but also it may be a spur to us to seek to find encouragement in Him. So the wider context for this, you'd really have to go back to chapter 27. And in the first verse of chapter 27, we read, But David thought to himself, One of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul, 
The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. Now, we're going to come back to that in a few moments, and we're going to see that actually within those words is something very important for the predicament that we heard about as this passage was read, the predicament facing David and his men. So what 27 is telling us that, as you probably know from the story of the life of David, he was being hunted and hounded by King Saul, who hates him and wants to destroy him. So he has this plan, I'll go and see if the Philistines, the arch enemies of Israel, will allow me to settle with them. After all, Saul is my enemy, and he is their enemy, and maybe they'll be sympathetic to me. Well, in chapter 28, we see that's exactly what happens. And in fact, the king of the Philistines, a chap called Akesh, uh, gets on very well with David, and he recognizes that David is a great warrior. And so in chapter 28, verse 2, he says to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. There's a massive turnaround, really that the Philistines who have caused so much distress to Israel, David not only is now finding refuge amongst them, but he's been made, if you like, the close protection officer for Achish, the king of the Philistines. Now, they stay there for about a year and four months, so they really settle in very well. And while they're there, Achish gives them a city to call their own. And the city was the city we read about this morning, the city of Ziklag. Now, the problem is that while David is there, and knowing some peace, after all, he's been hounded and on the run for an awfully long time with Saul, suddenly we hear that the Philistines have decided to go to war against Israel. So life has just got incredibly complicated for David. In fact, what we read in the passage is that it appears that David and his men are so much at home amongst the Philistines, and probably because he genuinely was being attempt, there was an attempt to hunt him to death by Saul, that David and his men offered to go with the Philistines to war against Israel. The world has just been turned upside down. Now, we read in chapter 29, the previous chapter, the one that was read to us this morning in verse 2, that as the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. They were determined to protect the king of the Philistines. Now, I wonder how you would feel about that if you were a Philistine commander. Well, probably you'd be a little bit nervous. After all, this is David... Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his tens of thousands, and can we really trust him in the heat of the battle? Maybe when he gets back and sees Israel again, the familiar sights, and hears Hebrew being spoken in the midst of the war and the battle, maybe he'll jump ship. And so the Philistine commanders object. And this takes us to where our passage began this morning, that the Philistine army is marching off to do war in Israel, David and his men now have been turned back. The commanders won't have it. They don't really trust him. And so they say, look, you, you just go back. 
you go back to Ziklag. And chapter 29 actually ends in a very innocuous way, but it's full of meaning for our chapter. David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went to Jezreel. Now, what we found this morning when we started reading this passage is that the first three verses present us with a scene of absolute devastation in Ziklag. You can picture it, can't you, that David and his men are returning, and there in the distance where they know Ziklag is, they begin to see smoke. And as they get nearer and nearer, there is silence. No one is coming out to meet them. And eventually, as they enter Ziklag, they discover that it has been burned. It has been destroyed. While they were out and planning to march with the Philistines against Israel, the Amalekites had sent a raiding party. They had invaded Ziklag. They had destroyed the place, and they had carried away, and the description is pretty powerful there in verse 2, they had taken captive the women, all who were in it, both young and old. But significantly, they killed none of them, but carried them off, probably for slavery. Now, the effect on David and his men as they come to Ziklag is utterly devastating. And in verse 4, we read that he and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Here is profound grief, real shock, real trauma. These are warriors. These are fighting men. And they're reduced to utter exhaustion through grief and weeping. They've lost everything. And we're told in this passage that David in particular, had lost his two wives. Now, just when you think things can't get any worse, it does get worse. The situation deteriorates because in verse 6, we're told David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Now, why were they thinking of that? Well, all sorts of reasons we might suggest. They're clearly blaming him, but the Verse 6 goes on to tell us that each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. At which point David turns to Abiathar the priest and says to him, bring me the ephod. Now we don't quite know what the ephod was, and I think for very good reasons, but it was something that was worn, usually on the high priest's chest, and uh, often used in the Old Testament in conjunction with Two other things called the Urim and Thummim. It was a way of discerning the Lord's will. How they did that, we don't know. There's a degree of mystery as the Bible draws a veil across this. But David asks Abiathar, shall I pursue this raiding party? Should we go after them? And the answer from heaven through Abiathar comes, pursue them. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So David heads off now with 600 of his men, although we're interestingly told in the passage that they come to a certain place and 200 of them are still too exhausted, it would seem through grief, to continue. And so he leaves them to shelter in a valley in a ravine. So as they're trying to find the Amalekites, suddenly they come across an Egyptian slave. 
who's been abandoned by the Amalekites. He seems to be in bad shape because they need to give him food uh, to eat and, and something to drink. But as he revives, he tells them where the Amalekites are holed up. So David and the 400 men now go after the Amalekites, and they go, go with great vengeance, and they fight them, as verse 17 says, from dusk until evening of the next day. None of the Amalekites get away, apart from a small group of young men who ride off on camels. Now, the amazing thing is that not only have they wreaked vengeance on the Amalekites, they discover that all of the women, the young and the old, all of the children, all of the plunder and extra is there. None of it is missing. And so they recover it. And the men who are with David rejoice, and they say in verse 20, this is David's plunder. Now, there is a little moment of controversy because, remember the 200 who were too tired to carry on, and David put them in a ravine in the shade so they could recover. Uh, when they come back, David suggests that they should give all the plunder, should be shared out equally, not between the 400 who did the fighting, but between the 600. And verse 22 tells us that some evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because this lot didn't go out with us, we will not share with them. And David says, no, that's not right. And uh, we're to share the plunder. In fact, he sends some of the plunder back to Judah. Now, here we are thousands of years later on a Sunday morning in Cardiff. And he says, it's all very interesting. It's a very exciting story. It's very interesting. But what in the world are we to make of this? I mean, after all, I've never met an Amalekite, and you probably haven't either. And uh, I've certainly not been to Ziklag. And when it came to the names at the end of chapter 30, well, you thought to yourself, what on earth is this about? I mean, after all, I've got all the issues in my life. You've got the issues you're facing here as a church about the need for a building. You've got things perhaps which are troubling you about work tomorrow or things in the family or whatever it may be, and you say, what on earth has this story got to do with me? Well, I want to suggest to you that at the heart of this incident is something that absolutely applies to your life as a Christian and mine, particularly in times of difficulty and distress, when life just seems to be outrageously complicated, and when it may even see as if God has turned against us. Central to this passage are the words at the end of verse 6. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Now there are many things we can say about this whole chapter before we come particularly to what it means to find strength in the Lord. The very first part of uh, 1 Samuel I took you to was chapter 27. And, you know, as I was telling you the story of what was happening here, you were probably thinking to yourself, how in the world can David get himself in such a mess? That he's not only the chief bodyguard to the king of the Philistines, but he's even contemplating going with the Philistines to war against Israel. I mean, I mean what's going on here? Well, the very first verse I read to you is verse 1 of chapter 27, and it begins like this. But David thought to himself. 
This is a fascinating moment in David's life, the experience in Ziklag. But one of the things that hallmarks it is the lack of reference in 1 Samuel to David inquiring of the Lord. It seems as if his logic as a king, as a warrior, as a politician and as a strategist had very much come to the forefront when he decided on this plan to go and shack up with the Philistines. Your enemy is my enemy. And those words David thought to himself reminds us that sometimes in life, the chaos and the confusion which we find ourselves in, and that was what it was for David, is chaos and confusion that we pull down on ourselves. Now, what is really interesting in this chapter, in this passage, or this this movement in David's life, is that whilst that is obvious to us, if we pay close attention to these chapters, particularly chapter 27 to chapter 30, that David has made a decision that is right in his eyes with no reference to God, what is really interesting is that there is no real sense that David is being judged here. It would appear a wrong decision, and yet nevertheless, it is a decision made in a time of great pressure and difficulty upon his life. And you might say to yourself, well, I wonder what God was thinking of David as he did this. And I think as the passage goes on, what we see is that God is incredibly compassionate towards David. So when he comes to that moment when his men are talking of stoning him, there is not a sense that the Lord said, well, you know, it's your fault, mate. It was your decision. It was your idea. You didn't seek me. You didn't pray. You didn't think this through properly as a Christian. You made your bed, you lie on it. You know, sometimes we can think of God in that way when things go wrong particularly when things have gone wrong in our lives, when it, we know it's been as a result of our neglect of Christian things. We've sailed a little too close to the edge, and things have gone wrong, and we blame ourselves quite rightly. But in those moments, we can find ourselves saying, well, this is my fault, this is my mess. The Lord is judging me. I must get myself out of this. But what we see in this passage is that the compassion and the grace of God towards David is such that though David has pulled disaster down upon himself, the Lord will not leave him there. And he answers him. A few other quick things. We also see in this passage the power of distress, which we need to be aware of as Christians. Grief and anxiety can cause people to do some very strange things. We can lose perspective. And David's closest men are talking of stoning him to death. And the only explanation we're given in verse 6 is that they were bitter in spirit. Bitterness in spirit. It can come upon any of us at any time. And it usually comes from facing life situations which we cannot control and we find overwhelming and impossible to take on board, like a bereavement or a loss of job, the breakdown of a relationship or a difficult diagnosis. And at times like this, our thinking 
may not be as clear and as wise as it should be. Now, this bitterness in spirit that verse 6 refers to is actually unpacked in the passage as to what it looks like. So it affects them physically. Through all that weeping in verse 4, they had no strength left. There is emotional weakness as well. David was greatly distressed. And the men, as they seek to process what are happening, the only place they can find relief for their distress is in terms of vengeance on David. And yet still within all of this, there is no talk of God. You know, when times like this come to you and to me, we do need times to express what we're feeling. There is an unashamed lamenting going on in this passage. Here is the venting of deep feelings and thoughts. And you know, as a Christian, sometimes you can think, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't say this. And yet again in this passage, amongst many examples in Scripture, we've been shown that actually it is okay to be honest about how you are. Now this contrasts ultimately with David's actions. For the Lord would not have you and me as Christians merely left in an awareness of our distress and venting and speaking openly about inward distress. The Christian ultimately is always called to a certain context. And here in this passage, we see it in the example of David. There at the end of verse 6, but David found strength in the Lord his God. It really is the first time properly that we hear of David during that one year, four months in the nation of the Philistines, seriously engaging with God. And it's through distress. It is the path of deep concern and agony of thought and mind and body that in the end brings David to a place where he calls on the Lord. And hasn't that been true in your life sometimes? I know it has in mine. Sometimes the Lord takes us and draws us closer to himself through great difficulties and great distresses. And in those moments, as painful as they are, they become moments that are deeply precious. David found strength in the Lord, his God. In fact, this is a moment in 1 Samuel of great change. A little while earlier, King Saul was in real distress. He didn't know what to do. And his response was to consult, not the Lord, but a medium. Here, David is shown to be God's man as he consults the Lord. 
And in that moment when Saul consulted the witch of Endor because he didn't know what to do, the Lord refused to answer Saul. But here, the Lord answers David. And in the bizarre circumstances of Ziklag in the nation of the Philistines, where everything has been turned upside down and drenched in sorrow and suffering and despair, in terms of our reading of 1 Samuel, it is here that David is acknowledged as God's man, the man who God speaks to and the man who God will use. Friends, we so quickly misread suffering and difficulty. And that's really easy for us to do because we're part of a materialistic culture where the signs of a good life are health and success and positive things. And because we're part of this culture, we bring this into our Christian lives. And so we find ourselves thinking that that God can only ever really speak to me in a powerful and in a moving way when I'm really on form and really on fire reading the Bible like never before. Or I've gone to a particular conference where the ministry is incredible and the music is wonderful and the worship and the praise is absolutely extraordinary. We say, surely this is the environment that God speaks to me in. And of course he does. And how wonderful that is. But as C.S. Lewis once spoke of how God's megaphone when he speaks to us is suffering and difficulty. We so quickly misread distress in the Christian life. We so quickly see it as a sign that God must be displeased with me. He's judging me. He's he's punishing me. That was the problem with Job, wasn't it? And his so-called comforters. Curse God and die, Job. Why? You must have been a really sinful man that all this stuff has come into your life. That's materialistic thinking. No. It is sometimes in the places of deepest distress that we know God in the deepest way. And though none of us would choose that path for ourselves or for one another, in God's providence, this is how he deals with us. And David knows his back is against the wall. And he knows that whilst his men have deserted him, The families have been taken. There is one place he knows he can go. And it is to the Lord. Have you ever had that experience in life? Where everything seems to have been taken from you? Maybe people have turned against you. Maybe you've lost your friends. And everything's secure and everything you thought you knew in the world has just been turned upside down. Always remember this, there is always one door that is open and one ear which will hear your prayer. Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Those are two big words, by the way, downcast and disturbed. This is the great thing about David. It's the great thing about Scripture. It never soft pedals real distress. It's honest about it. 
It tells it like it is. And yet, in telling us like it is, it always points us to comfort. David goes on in that psalm. Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise him. That is the language of faith in the midst of sorrow and difficulty. And so real is David's experience of God being in other psalms. He sometimes in the psalms refers to God simply as being my strength. And that's why those words at the end of verse 6 are so interesting. David found strength in the Lord his God. He knows that there are resources with God. There is something with God and his nature and his character, as we're going to see in a moment, which can revive him, give him the energy to live, and not only to survive, but to triumph. So what does it mean to find strength in the Lord? You know, you might be going through a hard time, and somebody's kind, and they send you a card or something like that, and they might put... A verse like this, or something like the verse from Psalm 42, put your hope in God, for you will yet praise him. And you say, well, that's all well and good. I've had this. You look at it, you say, that's all well and good. But, but what does that mean? What does it mean when you're in real crisis to find strength in the Lord your God? Well, there are all sorts of ways in which we can answer this, but I want to take us in a couple of particular directions this morning, which I trust will be a help and encouragement to us. The first thing here, we must believe that as David seeks to find strength in the Lord his God was the confession that he was weak. It's only weak people who need strength and weak people who look for strength. And I'm sure that as David came to the Lord in prayer, his words would have been like those words in Psalm 18. In my distress, I call to the Lord. You see, this is the great thing about being a Christian, isn't it? That in those moments of deepest soul and heart distress, we know that there is somewhere not only that we can go to find strength, but there is one who will hear of our distress and our concerns. It's hard work, isn't it, listening to people's distresses? Maybe you've got a friend or you know somebody and they've been going through a hard time for a very long time and, and they want to talk and they want to talk and they want to talk and it's so important and you know you should be listening, but sometimes you can feel so weary and you find yourself saying, Oh, I'm not sure I can put up with listening to this much longer. And I know sometimes as a pastor, I feel that. Sometimes it's more than I can bear. But that's never a problem with the Lord. He invites us to bring our distresses to him. In fact, I go so far this morning as to say it is wrong not to bring your distresses to him. What kind of a parent seeing their, their daughter come home from school, obviously very upset, would be indifferent. And maybe there comes a moment where she says, Mummy, I, I need to tell you, I've had a terrible day at school today, I need to tell you. And her mother says, no, no, hang on a minute, I, I'm busy answering someone on Twitter here. I've, I really haven't got time for you. You'd say, what kind of a mother is that? Or what kind of a father would do that? You'd say they're hopeless, they're useless, and they're not fit of the name, father or mother. We have a heavenly father who delights to hear 
our distresses, our concerns. Our concerns become his concerns. Do you know, we're not very good at this. Got to be honest. We're not very good at this. There's a principle. We talked about it during the pandemic quite a bit. It's called lament. And there are whole swathes of scripture which are given over to lament. Uh, we tend to be a bit understated. It's maybe because we're British. You know, Lord, I've been having a bit of a tough day. We don't really go for it. Listen to this. I won't read it all, but you look at it this afternoon, Psalm 38. This is David lamenting. Your arrows have pierced me. He's talking to God. Your hand has come down on me. Your wrath is the reason there's no health in my body. My bones have no soundness because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me. It's a burden too heavy for me to bear. My wounds fester and loathsome because of my sinful folly. I'm bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. Passages like that are the reminder that whatever you're going through, it is perfectly right and proper and part of your worship to bring your distress to God. But the great thing about biblical lament is it is not simply a get it all out in the open session. It is that. But it is always in the context of the reminder of who God is. That is real lament. Now verse 6 says, David found strength in the Lord his God. It is the Lord who becomes his focus now as he acknowledges his difficulties and his weariness. And he seeks to bring his little story of distress in Akesh into God's big story of who he is and all that he has done. When I was a little boy growing up, there was a book I found in my father's study which always fascinated me. It was How to Survive in Disasters. It's the kind of book you get given at Christmas when people can't think of anything else to get you. And I loved that book. It had in, in, very useful instructions. How to, uh, what to do if you find yourself in a field with a bull. That was one. Um, there was one, How to Survive a Nuclear Attack. You know, well, I, you know, when I was growing up, that was really important. So I, I, I read that and I made sure I understood, right, I know I'm ready for that one. And then there were other things as well, how to survive when you're, you're in a crowd which is crushing you. And even there was how to turn a newspaper into a lethal weapon, which was really exciting. But the one thing that stuck with me was how to escape from a car which has gone off a bridge into a deep river or a lake and is submerged. You're about 10 years old, you read that, you think this is really useful. Next time we're on a family trip somewhere, I know what to do. And so what you do, apparently, amongst the things that this book said anyway, there comes a point when, when eventually the pressure equalizes inside and outside, and you, you can get out. They say you need to be aware in this book, they say you need to be aware that when you exit the, the car, particularly if you're at the bottom of a deep lake, well, everything will be dark, and you won't necessarily know which way is the way to swim to get to the surface. So I was a bit worried at that point. But then they had some really good, the book was great, they had some fantastic advice for this. They say, what you do is you release a little bit of the oxygen and you see which way the bubbles are going and you follow them because they always go to the surface. So you got that one now, you're going to be all right. <laughs> okay. In other words, when you're in the chaos, in the darkness, you need points of reference 
You need something to navigate by. Friends, there are so many people who are in distress in our communities who are trying to navigate by stuff inside here. And they get told repeatedly the answers are within yourself. David found strength in the Lord, his God. In the character of God. These are like great stars shining in the darkness by which we navigate through sorrow and distress and difficulty and times when we're overwhelmed. So what are these stars? What are these things about God? Well, there's so many, aren't they, that they're glorious and they're wonderful, that whatever might be happening in our lives, however bleak it may seem, however dark it may seem, there is the news that He is always my Heavenly Father. He's always present in my life. Psalm 121, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. There is never a moment when his eye is not off you. He is always working in you and he is always working in you. And then there is the star that reminds us that he is sovereign. He's in control of everything. Oh, there are plenty of times when it doesn't look like it. Didn't look like it for David, did it? Looked like as if God was asleep at the wheel. It looked like God had said to David, well, you thought to yourself, well, now you're on your own, mate. But no, God is sovereign. He rules over everything. He rules over every atom in the universe. He sees little sparrows fall out of trees. He knows everything. And he is there. And he is working things out according to his perfect providence. Everything is going according to his plan. Do you know that's one of the most challenging things and yet at the same time one of the most encouraging things in times of real distress. The Lord's purposes have been worked out. I don't know about you, but there have been plenty of times in my life where I found myself saying, well, I haven't a clue what's going on here, but the Lord, I believe the Lord knows what he's doing. And there are times when we trust him. And we recognize that the one who is sovereign and controls all things and is working all things out according to the counsel of his own will for his glory and for our good is good. You see, God never plays games with us. He never says, oh, I'm going to do a little bit of experiment here. I'll put her in that situation there and I'll crank up the volume a bit and stand back and see what happens. God doesn't do that. He is good. He is kind. He is with you in through every experience that you face. And he is faithful to you. He's faithful to all who call on him. That's what David does here. He calls out to God. And it's clear from his need of the ephod and to work out what to do next. He didn't know. So you can imagine his prayer. Lord, they're talking of stoning me. I've lost my wives. I've lost everything. Everything has gone wrong. It's my own stupid fault. Lord, I really don't know what to do. But he knows God is faithful. And perhaps most wonderfully of all for you and for me, that no matter how dark it gets, he loves you and his love never fails. If you're struggling this morning, go to Romans 8, read that passage. What shall separate us from the love of God? And there's that huge list of catastrophic things which are overwhelming for us. 
But then Paul writes, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Friends, it's at times like this when, when everything is so difficult that we need the objective reality of who God is to anchor our hearts, to console our minds, and to give us courage and strength to move forwards. Years ago, my wife and I, we had a call to a church on the other side of the world. It was at the bottom of um, South Island of New Zealand. We weren't quite sure what the Lord was saying, uh, and we, we, we were there. While I was there, I was asked to preach at a conference in one of the most beautiful places in the world I think I've ever been to, next to Llanelli. Um, it's a place called Wanaka. It's just absolutely glorious, and uh, it was the most distracting conference centre I've preached in in my life, because it had these wonderful big glass windows at the bottom, and it was looking over the valley and the lake at Wanaka, and it was just so distracting. But I didn't know that the night I arrived, because we arrived in the dark, and it was August, and you say, well, that's nice, it's the summer. Well, it is, and they got it all upside down the other side of the world. It was the middle of the winter. And when we arrived, there was my wife, Karen, myself, and our, our lad, Gareth, who was very young at the time, probably about three. And they said, we've put you in the summer room. That's rather nice. It's the middle of winter. And we went in the summer room, and there was a mattress on the floor, and we, we put our coats on, and we put our gloves on, because it was absolutely freezing. And we huddled up together in bed, and we, we were there. And do you know what? I was probably the most miserable Welshman on the face of the planet in that moment. Lord, why have you brought us here? You can't even provide us with a decent bed. We're cold, miserable. And I actually remembered reading in a book about George Whitfield that when he was a student, the students were so poor, they couldn't light fires to keep warm, so they used to go running at night to warm themselves up. So I said to my wife, I'm going to go for a walk. So I was dressed anyway for it, so I got out of bed and I went for a walk. I'm feeling really miserable, I'm really negative, I'm really sad. And as I walked out of where we were staying, I saw the most spectacular thing. The night sky, clear, pure air, it was just full of stars to the extent I'd never seen before. And suddenly I realized in all my misery and all my self-internalizing of everything and my little complaints, I looked at this. The heavens declare the glory of God. And we need times like that. Sometimes we need a friend to do that. This is why when you're in real distress, you need the ministry of God's Word. You need that big view of Jesus to speak into your life and to remind you that you're loved with an everlasting love, that ever before there was an, an atom in existence that God knew you and He loved you and He made manifest that love in the gift of His Son on Calvary who died for your sins and that you are forgiven. And you are acceptable in the sight of God, who is eternally holy. We need these things. And maybe you need them today. In the midst of your distress and in the midst of the difficulties which you face. Find strength in the Lord your God. Remind yourself who he is. And all that he has done. And all that we see most clearly in Jesus Christ. 
It was an amazing moment in the life of Job where amidst all the advice he was being given, as he sat in the dust with his sores, holding the memory of his children who had been lost and his livelihood and his wealth scattered to the four winds, where he spoke these profound words about God. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. There is something outrageous, isn't there, about the faith that God gives us in times of deep distress and trouble when that faith is pointed on who he is. The Lord knows what he's doing in your life, and he loves you. And in the midst of all he is allowing into your life right now, he invites you to find strength in him. And there is more strength in God today than in all the sum of your problems added together and multiplied millions of times. He is your heavenly father.